you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in fast fade on the street. Stocks slide into the close. The S&P with its worst day in more than a month. And now a new worry front and uh, front and center from Washington. A debt ceiling fight that potentially could end very badly. Plus, Netflix also on the clock. Set to report tomorrow after the bell. The stock's been on a tear of 35% in the last three months. But has it reached a breaking point or is it ready to take the streaming crown? And later, is the move higher for the airlines about to hit some turbulence? The options action on that sector straight ahead. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start off with a major loss of momentum on the street. Markets closing near their lows of the day, with the Nasdaq breaking its longest win streak in over a year. The Dow leading the losses, dropping 1.8%. Every single member of that index down today. It is now less than a half a percent from going negative for the year. So does today's action suggest the rally we saw at the start of the year has run out of steam, particularly as we approach earnings season. Tim, what do you say? Well, we had some, uh, you know, we talk macro on the show a lot, and mm -hmm. probably sometimes viewers are tired of it. I'll just say that the, the data this morning was awful. The industrial production numbers were terrible. Retail sales were terrible. Uh, and even the PPI dynamics, while they show year over year, we're down to 6.3 versus 7.2 where we were in November. Um, there's some elements of the PPI that actually indicate that there's going to be some stickiness to uh, the parts of the services and the labor piece. So uh, we've had a great run. We've had a great run really since December 28th. We've talked about this, uh, whether it's the most cyclical or the most bombed out or even just the highest multiple parts of the economy. Bad news was bad news today. The only good thing out there for you know people that are wishing on uh, the largest market cap stocks in the market, the FANG, the top five or six stocks, is that the 10-year got down to 328 today. And so people that are looking at, at you know the, the slower growth dynamic as a place to buy defensive stocks, I think that's a, and I think we've you know, I think we've outlined that as being a mistake to, mm -hmm. to, to believe that that's safety net. But again, to me, it was a day. It wasn't so much that the market ran out of gas. You were reminded front and center that big, big, important data pieces of our economy are slowing aggressively. Yeah, and we were also reminded about where the Fed is headed or where the Fed wants us to believe it is headed. Um, James Bullard uh, reiterating once again that uh, that rate could go as high as five and a half percent. And so I was chatting with Steve Leesman earlier today on the exchange, and we we're, we're noting how there, there's a huge discrepancy between what the market is pricing in and what, if you take Bullard's word, the Fed is pricing in, that could be as much as 78 basis points of difference in terms of where we see that terminal rate. That's yeah, huge. But market participants are conditioned to know when we have this sort of weakening, what does the Fed do? And they pivot, right? And so that's yeah. really the thing. So you know, we've been debating and last night on the desk. We talked about this hard landing, soft landing. What's consensus now? David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research tweeted this out after the data this morning. Sorry, folks, no soft landing on track for three straight quarters of declines in real retail sales alongside two successive negative production numbers. 
only happens in recession. So the point is, if the consensus is, and why we've been rallying over the last, let's call it two weeks, is that a soft landing, we can handle that. We can handle higher rates. The dollars coming in, Mm -hmm. the inflationary pressures that are coming in, that's all good. I mean, some of this data might be accelerating to the downside, and I think that's the reaction of the market, especially as we go into earnings season, because I think when you see the sort of acceleration in job cuts by some of these big companies, they're trying to tell you that we need to signal that we're going to get costs under control because rate environment, you know, everything else, just the headwinds to growth are going to be the sorts of things that we have to start operating in a recessionary environment. And right now, I don't think the market is pricing that. So to me, I think that you want to take this stuff seriously um, and earnings are really going to be front and center, obviously, over the next three weeks at a time where we're also going to get a lot of Fed, Fed one meeting. um, And then, you know, we have the meeting uh, quickly in in Mm mid-March. So there's obviously been this dash dash for trash kind of, right? right? Anything that was really high multiple and had a terrible last year was doing really well at the beginning of this year. I mean, six cents, a big move, but we're only back to where we were, I don't know, a week ago or so. So I'd actually prefer for the market to be down going into earnings rather than up just because the bar is lower. I mean, if you're right and we are headed into a recession and that's what if you go out the curve, that's what it's telling you, um, then I think the market has some ways to, to come down. But I always come to the point of it's not a monolithic one stock. Some things I think are going to do fine, and some things I think are not, and some things I think might do okay, but have run so much already. Netflix right. might be one of them. Yeah, I mean, closer to four thousand on the S and P five hundred during earnings season. There, you know, there's less room for things to go wrong, guy, than where we are now, thirty nine twenty five or so. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Tim hit the nail on the head. Bad news today, at least, was bad news. But by the way, the knee jerk reaction to a lot of those numbers this morning. The market was actually higher, as I know Mm -hmm. you know, but the board comments through some cold water on things. And I think they're doing that for a reason. They're really trying to condition the market that, hey, we're pretty serious about what we're saying. So the good news is, to Karen's point, we're still about 100 or so S&P points higher than where we started the year. So it's not disastrous by any stretch of imagination. But now you're starting to see, I think, the effects of the Federal Reserve's raising rates Things are starting to slow precipitously. And in this environment, again, my opinion, lower 10-year yields are not bullish. And, you know, I think you could see a scenario where 10-year continues to go lower from here, where the two-year can remain pretty sticky around 4%. So if you get a 1% inversion, which is not out of the realm of possibility, what do things look like there? That, to me, has to be one of the concerns. In terms of guidance, um, you know, we're all saying, oh, guidance, guidance. It's going to be all about the guidance. But a lot of things, um, you know, to all these points about the dollar coming off, we're, we're down 10 percent from the peak in September or so. Rates have come down. I mean, a lot of things that had been headwinds are now tailwinds. So in terms of the guidance, are we really going to get that guidance that we thought would, you know, jumpstart that reset of the bar of earnings estimates? Reset lower? Lower. Yes, yeah. I, lower. Look, I... I Although the dollar is not a headwind, it's maybe a tailwind. They're not going to talk about that. I I mean, in the same way, we didn't hear a lot about it even on the way up for the dollar. I I just think um, gross margins peaked in in the crisis. You had the best of all worlds, and and you had a consumer also uh, that had built up a lot of firepower. And we're slowly starting to see some normalization in the consumer uh, balance sheet. And, you know, guys talked about consumer credit. We've talked about the savings rates. Um, So I, I... I do think we're going to see the bar set lower. And I think that the the reality is that the bar is lower. And the reality of the numbers we got today, and again, the S&P at 4,000 this morning, until about 1030, right when these numbers came out, the important numbers on industrial production and retail sales, uh, 
the numbers we got show that the consumer retrenched even over the last couple months of the year. So we talk about backward-looking data, and it's not worth anything. This is where the backward-looking data is telling you something that I think is important. It wasn't as good as it even seemed in the fourth quarter, and I think that's part of what stocks had to price in immediately. So I don't think the bar... Um, I think the bar is not going to try to find some silver linings. I think they will reset it. So do you think that the initial move higher on the back of the week, the clearly weaker numbers, was this bad news is good news, that the Fed is closer? And then the realization when Bullard came out that the Fed may not be close no matter what the data says? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's how it seemed to me, right, that um, higher, they're just sort of reinforcing the higher for longer that we don't want to hear. We thought maybe it wouldn't be that way. But yeah. he was saying, yes, it is. I thought some really interesting price action. So we were talking about the, all those banks that reported on Friday morning. And Bank America, you know, which, or excuse me, J.P. Morgan, which had closed on Thursday at 140, mm-hmm. opened down at like 135 off after those results. And then by, I don't know, noon that day, it was trading at 143. And I was like, that was pretty powerful. It was making new like six-month highs. Well, look at it. It's given all of that back almost. It's kind of threatening, I guess, those lows from the other day. And so to me, that's really indicative of what people wanted to happen, the things that they wanted to see out of these reports and kind of marrying that with the macro. And so I would keep a close eye on J.P. Morgan. Let's see if we can take out those lows um, from Friday morning, because that might signal that any enthusiasm that you had about kind of near term headwinds, you know what I mean? We're kind of going to overlook those and start positioning a portfolio for like later on this year. I think J.P. Morgan could be the leader. I mean, like really, we often say that banks that report first set the tone for, um, you know, the whole earnings season. Keep an eye on J.P. Morgan. That one's interesting to me. For more on today's late-day sell-off, let's bring in Dan Suzuki, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Richard Bernstein Advisors. Dan, great to see you in person. Happy New Year, guys. Um, in terms of, we were just talking about, you know, what the markets believe in terms of not believing the Fed, not believing the, the higher for longer. Who's going to win? Because it feels like, you know, Fed officials want to come out and say, you know what, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And the market's not pricing that in. Yeah, I think it's it's been a really confusing period for markets. I mean, at times, when you look at the last couple of months, you've got this massive cyclical rally, spreads have come in. So off to the races, right? Growth, we're probably going to have a soft landing. But at the same time, uh, you know, there's all these concerns about a recession. And, you know, I don't know what the market's really trying to price in. I think at the end of the day, you know, I think if today was really uh, a bad news is bad, is bad news market, I think that's really healthy. I don't know if that's the case. As, as we said, the initial reaction was positive, and then you know there was some Fed speak to change the tone. If bad news is bad news, I think that's the right thing, because the reality is when markets are, are, are rallying off of bad news, that's a myopic view of the focus on the Fed. But that's, that's, the Fed is a lagging indicator reacting to lagging indicators. The reality is I can tell you what's going to happen with the Fed, inflation, growth, and earnings, and rates – if you tell based on growth, growth is going to be the thing that drives everything this year. That's very different than last year. And when it was the inflation, when it was the Fed, I think growth is heading lower. I think that's going to not be perceived positive for markets. So at the end of the day, bad news is bad news. Dan, you've been consistent with with a lot of this view. And I, I, I you know, it's been right. I look at your notes and I see tech um, could be down another 50 yeah. percent, five zero, not 15, not, you know, um, that's extraordinary. And I realize there are many different parts of tech. There's the Internet. There's uh, certainly uh, there's cloud, there's software, there's data. Um, try to define that a little bit more. Yeah, I think broadly tech. I mean, let's just call it NASDAQ or, 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 you know, just anything having to do with tech. If you look at the sectors, the three sectors that have heavy exposure to tech are communication services, information technology. Uh, and consumer discretionary, those three sectors, I think, are heavy risk. I mean, we've only come down from like half of the market cap 
uh, to like 43%. I mean, there's definitely a lot more room. If you think about it, bubbles, which I think it was a bubble, take time. It takes time for people to give up on their... So this is a market starting, but I mean, so you're talking about the structure of the market. You're saying it was 50%. It's come down to only 43% of the market cap of the S&P. And and that's just not the right number. I think there's further downside because people haven't given up. If you look at the biggest holdings in people's portfolios, that's still where they are. If you look at the most expensive part of the market, that's where they are. Uh, Look just at the sheer number of products and ETFs out there. That's where they are. I mean, that's where the focus is. And I think it takes time for people for that mentality to change. If you go back to the tech bubble, you had 16 different uh, bear market rallies over that two and a half year period. We've had three double digit rallies in the Nasdaq over this time. So I think, again, there's going to be rallies. But I would you know, I I think ultimately there's a lot more pain because bubbles don't deflate overnight. Mm Um, a lot of people make a lot about fund flows and where invest, institutional investors are. And cash levels are still very high. And mm-hmm. one argument would be, well, there's a lot of dry powder. That dry powder, though, can go many different places, not into U.S. equities. So where do you think, what do you think happens to that dry powder? And why might the bull case, you know, the traditional bull case, that that money will go back into U.S. equities why, why can that be wrong this time around? Well, if you actually go look at cash levels in cycles, you actually see cash levels consistently pick up uh, into and grow into the entire you know, bear market. So I don't think there's anything surprising about high cash levels. Um, and, and I think where, where could it go? Well, I think flows follow performance. That's why I don't tend to look at flows week to week or month to month. Just, and, and, and if you do want to look at flows, what was the highest, or the sector with the highest inflows last year? Well, technology. So that should be a worry of itself. I think that you're going to see flows, you know, you've seen flows follow the market. So you've been, seen big outflows after markets have fallen. You've seen inflows because mm-hmm. we've had a rally. You know, I think ultimately it's going to take years for the performance to prove where the flows will ultimately go. I think the leadership in the next 10 years is going to look almost be a, almost a mirror image of what we saw over the last 12 years. And so, you know, once you start to see that two years later, three years later, then you'll start to see the big flows into those areas. Dan, thanks for coming by. Good to see you, Dan thanks, Suzuki. Turning now to the other big story that we're watching, the countdown is on for Congress to come to an agreement on the debt ceiling. The U.S. expected to hit its borrowing limit at some point tomorrow, something that has not happened in more than 11 years. Elon Moy has been tracking the developments and has more on what it could mean for the markets. Elon. Well, Melissa, there is still a little bit of time. The Treasury Department is expected to begin deploying extraordinary measures tomorrow in order to keep paying the nation's bills, and that'll kick off the debt limit fight here in Washington. Now, those measures include suspending reinvestment in the thrift savings plan for federal workers and pausing new investments in the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the Health Benefits Fund for retired postal workers. Now, Treasury projects that'll buy us enough time to stave off the specter of default until at least early June. But this is all happening a little earlier than Washington had anticipated. And one of the reasons for that is higher than expected interest rates. Last spring, the CBO projected that the cost of paying down our debt would be about $400 billion in fiscal 2022. The reality was the total was $475 billion, more than we spent on veterans benefits, transportation, or even higher education. Republicans say this is exactly why we need to pump the brakes on spending. This week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy ruled out a clean debt limit increase, calling instead for common sense compromise on a balanced budget. 
But Democrats counter that the debt limit should not be a political bargaining chip. So, Melissa, we're going to hear a lot of this kind of rhetoric over the next few months because this is unlikely to get resolved until lawmakers on both sides of the aisle feel they've exhausted all of their options. Back over to you. It is a political bargaining chip, though, Elon. And so, I mean, I'm wondering, from a market, market participant standpoint, I think traditionally it has been something that, that is assumed will work itself out. Nobody wants to drive the U.S. to default. Nobody, no party wants to own that at all. Um, and so something will be done. Why, in your view, do politics actually, um, you know, play out this time so that it, it may actually get to that point? Yeah, I think the real risk here is not that someone is going to ride the default train into economic oblivion or political oblivion <laughs> even, but rather that there's the risk of an accidental default because the political movering that it could take to get us out of the brinksmanship that we've seen in the past could take some time. The measures that people are talking about, whether it's a discharge position, petition, whether it's a complicated procedure that would kick authority back over to the president in order to uh, raise the debt limit, whether it's debt prior prioritization, all of those things take time to work out. And when you're operating against the deadline, the one thing you don't have is time. So I think that's the concern. You remember back in 2011, uh, the U.S. credit was downgraded even before we actually even defaulted. Mm -hmm. The U.S. didn't actually end up defaulting, but even the specter of it was enough to rattle markets um, and enough to rattle investors. So I think that's the risk that you're really seeing here. And the other big political difference is that now any one member who's unhappy with Kevin McCarthy's decisions in the House can force a vote to oust him as speaker. And so that creates another level of political uncertainty where you could end up with leadership in Congress who you don't even know who that person's going to be or who you're going to be bargaining with um, in order to get out of the mess. Oh, Elon, thank you. Elon Moy in Washington for us. Guy, it does seem like it's a little bit different this time around, a little bit more complicated, a little bit more fraught with danger in terms of the political undercurrents um, surrounding this negotiation. I yeah, I, I agree with that. And I don't think the market's taking it seriously enough because, and listen, this is not a politics show, but unfortunately we have to sort of dive into it from time to time. And I do think there's probably a fringe group out there that have a loud enough voice and a strong enough position where they're going to push the envelope on this thing. And I don't think the market is fully comprehending that. Now, I think we'll navigate our way through it. But unfortunately, with a VIX at 20 uh, and a market that's rallied you know, pretty significantly over the last couple of weeks, I don't think any of it's necessarily priced in. And that's one of those things that, you know, we talk about tail risk all the time. I think this is a pretty significant one. Goldman Sachs, in its note, uh, talking about the, the debt ceiling and, and hitting the limit, says, remember the 2011 yeah. debt ceiling I remember crisis. where I was. I mean, um, the S&P 500 <laughs> lost 15 percent yeah. in that period. So that's why we're talking about something that is perceived as political, because it does have an impact on the markets. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny, if the U.S. government were a company and we look at God, they got this giant balance sheet, and they got these <laughs> debts coming due, but don't worry, they're not going to pay the pensions. They're not. Right. Don't worry. Don't worry. That equity sounds would like GM in the 80s. Right. Right. That equity Sorry. would be training down a lot. I wonder, though, in this time, in a time of great volatility in the markets, is the U.S. Treasury, I would assume, still going to be the sort of, you know, the highest quality, the flight to quality? The irony of it right. being sort of the cause of, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what else is going on. Was was that the when was the Greek debt crisis? The Greek bank. Well, that's 2011, that? 2012, and and yeah. the the U.S. AAA downgrade was was you know preceded then the European sovereign bond uh, disaster, which is on some levels something we've been trying to unwind for the last 
uh, six months. And and one of the reasons why, actually, if you look at some of the, the banks in Europe, but they've I mean, they've actually rallied on the back of this. But again, it absolutely was a decade ago where, you know, say flinch. And actually, you know, we the, the credit rated rating agencies stepped in and, and they ruled and they ruled in a way that markets were so not prepared for. And that August was one of the most I mean, again, I was managing a long short hedge fund at the time. And, and those were crazy days. Those were as crazy days um, for risk and all the moving currencies we ever saw. That happened. The, de- the deck downgrade of the U.S. happened on a Friday afternoon yep. after 5 o'clock p.m. Yep. Were they hoping no one would notice? You just put it out <laughs> on Friday afternoon. Action, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, yeah, I guess the only good news about this is that the Fed, when you talk about the tools that they have in their toolbox, we just kind of addressed this. The fact that yields are where they are gives yeah. them some latitude, I guess, because back then, I mean, it was QE after QE. It was like they couldn't kind of take their foot off the pedal anyway. So maybe they but have. We had deflation. Yeah. But just maybe they have a little a little room to do stuff, and maybe that's why yields are trading the way they are. Coming up, building up for gains, signs of renewed life in the housing market. Could today's headlines give a boost to the builders? We'll bring you the trades, plus Wall Street closing the book on shares of Chegg today. What are investors reading between the lines here? Those trades and much more when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Home builder sentiment and mortgage demand coming in hot today. The data pushing housing stocks high, higher earlier in the day, though the sector ended the session well off the highs. We are seeing, are we seeing a turning point for the space? Diana Olick joins us now with the details. Diana. Well, Melissa, the street was looking for another drop in builder sentiment, but instead we got the first gain in 12 straight months. The NAHB survey for January rose four points to 35. That's still in negative territory. But it's a start. Of course, sentiment was at 83 a year ago. Still, builders pointed to lower mortgage rates for the optimism. Rates actually dropped again sharply today, down to 6.04% on the 30-year fix, according to Mortgage News Daily. That's down from 7.37% at the end of October, and that sparked mortgage demand as well. Mortgage applications last week jumped 28% from the previous week. Now, some of that is coming off the holiday lull, but more of that is, of course, the lower rates as both demand for refis and home purchases rose. The builders said in their release that this could mark the bottom of this housing recession. And the mortgage bankers suggested rates would go even lower. But we're not out of the woods yet. Home prices are still very high and there is precious little available for sale. Melissa. Diana, when they say the bottom of the housing recession, what exactly does that mean? Because I I would have thought that the supply demand dynamic is such that things are still good and will continue to be good. And that bottom is still far off. 
Well, that's the builders. So they're talking okay. about construction. They're talking about housing starts, building permits, et cetera. Now we get the December numbers tomorrow morning. So that's going to be a little bit backward looking. But what they're trying to say is they believe that starts and permits will start to rise from here. Ah, Diana, thank you. Diana Olek. Is this good news? Uh, I, you can get excited for a couple of days, but I mean, first of all, the excitement in the sector has been rates going lower. Home builders are at you know six month highs, and and there was a nice double bottom here, and the chart guys uh, I think could pretty much point to where this was almost to a T. Um, there's nothing here in what we've talked about tonight that is good for housing. And talk about a consumer that I think is going to be under more pressure than they have been. Um, talk about it, you know building costs if you know copper prices are going high. I mean, I, I think a lot of the costs related to housing actually aren't going to get a whole lot better. So no, I would not be chasing this news. I wouldn't be chasing lower rates into housing. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the chase was that, I mean, we all know people who locked in 30 year fix at like below 3%, mm -hmm. what a year and change ago. So the idea that we had seven and a half percent, not too long ago, you have that sort of decline in such a short period of time. And the sort of data that we've seen about mortgage applications, it makes sense here. Um, but again, I just don't think that's going to be a trend. And sooner or later, I think a lot of the supply demand dynamics that where people were saying was a massive tailwind. Um, I just don't, you know, I just don't see it here. So I, I, again, I don't think there's really anything to chase because ultimately um, you're going to see yields come down much lower, but it's going to be much longer from now. All right. Uh, meantime, let's take a look at shares of Discover Financial dropping after reporting earnings. The credit card company beating on expectations on the top and bottom lines, but did increase its provision for credit losses, potentially signaling that it sees weakness in the consumer ahead. The shares are down 6%. Right now, um, the type of consumer who has a Discover card, Karen, is a little bit different. A little bit different, a, a little quality. lower down on the mm -hmm. right on the FICO score chain. But it's it's not good for anyone, yeah. right? right? You know, if they they are increasing their provisions, I think their charge offs were higher. The quarter of this past quarter wasn't bad. Their net interest margin was good, but it's really not about that anymore. It's about the consumer, and so you would think there'd probably be some look through to Capital One. But who else has credit card exposure? You know. Big banks, um, probably not great for a Bank of America. If, uh, you know, I, I like Bank of America a lot. I think that um, if this is just a small blip up, that's fine because credit hasn't been this good in I don't know how long. Right. So we knew that it would turn at some point. The question is, is this an acceleration that that sort of snowballs. Right, right. Provisions were given, right? Increasing provisions yeah. were a given. It's yeah. the, the degree of increase that may be a concern, Guy. It is. No, it has to be a concern, right? At some point, the shoe is going to drop. We've been trying to point out how levered, you know, the debt associated with the consumers now north of $5 trillion. It's just a matter of time in this environment. So DFS is first. First question is, where can the stock go? Look at 88 bucks. That's where we broke down from right before, obviously, COVID hit in earnest. We probably round trip. But the next question is, OK, does American Express do this? And we see some of the other money center banks. So there's never just one cockroach, unfortunately. And I think this is the beginning of something a little bit bigger. Yeah. Capital One, by the way, is down two and a half percent or so in the after hours. Coming up, Netflix earnings on deck. Is the name a buy ahead of results or should you just chill? Yeah. <laughs> but first, Chegg gets crushed. Investors checking out of this one in a big way today. We'll bring you those trades straight ahead. You're watching Fast Money Live for the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Buzzkill Unchegged, the shares of the educational tech company plummeting more than 16% today. Needham downgrading the stock to a hold from buy, saying revenue growth estimates for Chegg services look too high and could limit near-term upside with stock down 82% from its all-time high in 2021. Are the best days behind this pandemic high flyer? Well, they're far away, at least, the very <laughs> least, Tan. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the things I thought interesting about this downgrade was the mention of chat GPT, right? So mm-hmm. it's this kind of um, this machine learning, this language machine learning. And we talked about it a little bit on the show. And this is this um, offering from OpenAI. And, and again, they, the, the fact that they see this as a potential tailwind or a headwind to um, a company that is in the ed tech tools business, I just think is really interesting. I think we're going to start hearing more and more about this in some different models. Again, this is not a huge company. It's a $3 billion market cap, but it was also one of those companies that saw a massive pull forward from the school at home during the pandemic, and we saw a huge reset. It did show good relative strength for the back half of last year, and I just think it's interesting that a headline like this, a downgrade from a company like Needham, coupled with this sort of thesis, could take 15% out of the stock in a straight line. Do you think that this is like the Peloton of education? Yes, it was. Um, Yes. Interesting. Uh Right. I mean, in terms of yeah, pull yeah. forward, it's like, well, are we right. going to go back to the days when all these kids are sitting at home in front of their computers? Probably not. Knock on wood. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but the, the, the pull forward is something that we saw in the stock price. It's now trading down 80 percent from where it was. And it is a profitable company. I mean, it is a company that makes money. It's a company right. where the P.E. actually matters because they have a core business. So, you know, I think there are, there are companies coming out of the, the pandemic that, that just don't make money. And, and, and arguably, you know, something like Peloton, and we're now into apples and oranges, but we've, we've, you know, they tried to grow too fast. There's a dynamic there that I think didn't make sense. We were sold on really a subscription service when really maybe there's still proof that this is not just a hardware company. Coming up, are the airline stocks losing altitude? One of our traders is betting on downside for the group. We'll bring you that trade ahead. But first, markets reaching a key level today. But where are we heading from here? We're going off the charts to find out. That's next. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check on the markets today. Stocks selling off as the January rally appears to lose steam. The Dow dropping more than 600 points. The S&P down 1.5%. Its worst day in over a month. And the Nasdaq snapping a seven-day winning streak. Despite the sell-off, some names still hovering near all-time highs. Ulta, Hess, and Arch Capital all trading near those levels. But the broader trend may be concerning, the trend lower, that is. The S&P today dropping below its 200-day moving average. It was just a week ago that it broke back above it. So what could this move mean for stocks? Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus, a Baird company. Chris, what do you see for the S&P? Well, I think it's a very trendless uh, environment. And what we show you here is just the S&P over the last two years. And we're smack in the middle of what has actually been the range now for the last six months. For the last six months, we've traded between 43.25 on the high side and 36 uh, on the 
low side. We're 39 and change today, smack in the middle. I think if we're ultimately going to break up and out of this range, we need to see the new high list really expand. So something we watch, the number of stocks at three-month highs, I want to see this surge. 35, 40, 45% of the index meet that hurdle. It's exactly what we saw coming off the 2020 lows. We saw at various points in 2021. Good, durable moves are met with an expanding new high list. I don't think we have that here. Play the range, sell the high end, maybe buy the low end. But perhaps the bigger clue about where we are in the regime here is S&P versus gold. S&P is on the lows relative to gold. So if you bought the market on October 12, 2022 at the low, you actually would have lost money relative to gold. That is a very different regime than I think the consensus is used to. So whether you're bullish or bearish on S&P, gold is still better here. I think it's a very important message. Mm. Um, and we also want to touch on your call from Apple yeah. last month. It was sort of controversial because you said you liked 100. Those were your words. Yeah. You still see it heading to 100? I do. If it was controversial then, it's just as much uh, right now. We've had a very, I would describe, tepid bounce uh, in Apple over the last couple of weeks. We failed at about 140 today. That's that downward sloping 50-day moving average. I think the relative profile is still quite weak. The 200-day moving average is now flat and turning lower. Big reversal under the 50-day today. But, But let's just think about this behaviorally. What is the purpose of bear markets? Bear markets change leadership. So I find it very unlikely in the next bull that we're going to go back to the same type of stocks that defined the last environment. So why do I want to own this in a downtrend when I can own what I think is the new leadership? It's all these big basic resource stocks coming out of these massive bases. Here's BHP. This could be Rio. This could be Valet. This could be Freeport. This could be Southern Copper. These have been dead money for the better part of the last 15 or 20 years, they're all starting to break out of these big ranges. So when you're in this leadership regime, I think people spend too much time trying to go back to the former leaders instead of instead of embracing what the market is saying is what's next. This is what's next. Spend your time and your capital here. All right. Uh, Chris, good to see you. Thanks so much for stopping by. Chris Verone of Strategus. Um, This is music to a lot of our traders ears. A lot of their acronyms include metals, uh, materials. Uh, Tim, you're looking at commodities. Yeah, I, I think, boy, you know, BHP, Rio Tinto, names I'm long, names my clients are long. This, this is a case where if you look at copper prices, they're up 15% this year. This isn't um, a trade that is at all fearful. It's not just about China reopening. Um, I'm not telling you that the global demand is going through the roof. I'm telling you that we have a decarbonization trend going on in the world, which means you need a lot more copper on renewable and electric grid expansion and things that are just, you know, if you listen to Glencore, and I was listening to their investor day today because this is what I do sometimes, and, and they pointed out that they actually think copper needs to go to almost seven bucks a pound. It's now at $4.30, 22 cents a pound for a significant period of time to wipe out the demand and get it back into supply demand. So I I think, you know, between China, between uh, what's going on, I think actually in just trends that are going on in the world in terms of uh, renewables and whatnot, copper was always a supply-limited, supply-disruption kind of a metal. I think these integrated miners, I totally agree with Chris, uh, and I think you've got a lot more to go. And the dollar trend, at least right now, is on the side of of metals. Guy, what was was your acronym again? (laughs) 
don't don't feign <laughs> ignorance, Mel. I know you know. That would be Mojo, of course, and the yeah, M in Mojo is metals. And mm -hmm. Tim, you know, Tim's right. And going back to the lead of the show, you know, why is the Fed being so dogmatic in their view when seemingly they're winning? The reason why is because of what Tim just pointed out. Just when you think you have inflation beat, it rears its ugly head. And I think they're trying to avoid the mistakes made in 1972. I remember it well. And I think they're going to be steadfast. So commodities can go higher from here, significantly so. And I think metals, mining, and these resource names, this could be the year for them for sure. All right, you guys may be surprised. The Q in my TLS Q, Q is QQQ. Yeah. And one of the largest holdings in that is Apple. Um, yeah. I, I kind of like if you see Apple at 100, 110 or something, I think you have to buy that. There's some exciting things. And you haven't heard me say this in a very long time. I think the idea of this mixed reality headset, if it were to come out later this year for Apple, I think they literally might have the first mass use products in like in AR and VR. And you think of their installed base at one and a half uh, billion iOS users around the world. No one's been able to tell us how we're going to use AR and VR. And I just think that we all have Apple products in and around us. And I just think that could be a big opportunity. How about the notion that Chris is talking about, that the new leadership will not be the old I don't leadership. buy it. That's I'll tell you why. Okay. It's put together all those energy companies, those metal and mining companies and all this other stuff. They just don't add up. There's no way we enter another bull market without those top. I, I would say Apple's dominance is so peaked in this country. I mean, it doesn't change. It's not a great company Who's the doesn't incremental change the customer what's that who's the incremental yeah, customer? every customer we that will is look a customer. back on this time and is again this is one of the great the american companies customer. of all time i love apple i'd so don't what if they do to the ar and vr what they did to smartphones i mean i'm just saying that's how you have to think apple about the next in leg of, market of this company peaked, not necessarily market cap in terms of its market weighting in terms in terms of its dominance on the market in terms of its dominance on its suppliers on the app i mean let's let's double it up let's do it good old-fashioned street fight which we can have on another show that's a Starring Little Miss Sunshine, Dan um, Nathan. Yeah, you know her. I know. <laughs> On the buy side. <laughs> Role reversal, not risk reversal. By nice. the way, we mentioned a few of them out uh, here, but there are six days left to vote for your favorite 2023 trader acronym. All the picks are on our homepage. All right. You can pick your three favorites. So head on over to cnbc.com slash fast money or scan the QR code on your screen right now to go vote. Polls close uh, the end of our show on Tuesday, January 24th. Coming up. We're diving into some high-energy trading, oil and energy stocks hitting some major milestones, but where are prices going from here? Plus, they're streaming into Netflix results, numbers set to cross the wires after the bell tomorrow. But could this glass onion make you cry? The details in Fast Money Glass onion. Welcome back to Fast Money. Oil and energy stocks kicking off the day in the green fueled by enthusiasm over China's reopening. The Vanek Oil Services ETF traded at highs not seen since April 2019 before retreating along with the broader market. Even with today's losses, though, OIH is up 40 percent over the past year. One of the O's in Mojo, Guy. <laughs> yeah. And I, listen, I obviously the reversal today is concerning without question when you look at the time frames we talk about on the show. But if we're looking at it over the course of the Mojo year, oil service names are still very reasonable in this environment on valuation. And as Tim's pointed out numerous times, the, mo the majority of these companies, specifically the three that make up 50% of the ETF, uh, Halliburton, Schlumberger, and to a certain extent, Baker Hughes, they're all better run companies with better balance sheets. So even if crude oil goes nowhere this year, meaning sideways, I think these stocks are still undervalued and still go higher in this environment. 
Well, I agree with, with guys O and Oja. This was my O last year, which I still own. I think it's great. Although, one other trade that I had on, which was uh, long the OIH short oil, that trade has really moved. I took it off way early, and OIH has done way better than oil. So it used to be oil could be flat, down, didn't matter. Still, the OIH was going to do fine. Um, now, probably flat or up would be really good for the OIH, and I think we're probably at flat or up. I know you're probably more bullish than flat or up. No, well, this is part of my uh, my live trade last year, so the E being energy <laughs> or live, depending on how you do it. I, I And I, I would point out that the slumbergers of the world that I'm still very long have outperformed the underlying oil you know, by 80 percent in the last six to nine months. So um, I, I think this trade, you know, OPEC was out there today also talking about China demand and, and what that means actually for supply demand balances that put a bit under things. But it's not about the price of crude. And I think we would all agree that. And that's at least unless you, unless you're an oil trader, which I'm not. By the way, guy, your mojo trade is tied for first. Mm. With Mills's fame trade, 15%. Of, I mean, this is a competition going on. So if you haven't checked it out, go to our homepage. Uh, it's a popularity vote. contest. You can actually vote as many oh, times can as I, you can want. Because I, I, I voted six can times. I, can I, <laughs> just now. In the, just now. Can I literally just, just now. It's, yeah. can, I interject, can I interject quickly? Quickly. Um, Jeff Mills' mom, Jeff Mills mom <laughs> watches this show. And I know oh, for a fact voting. she has been sitting there pressing the button for her son. <laughs> which I totally dig, by the way, Mrs. Mills. Do your thing. <laughs> All right. From energy to airlines, a jet ETF that tracks the U.S. airline space is up nearly 17 percent so far this year. But Dan Nathan says it could hit some serious turbulence. Dan. Yeah, we had that great interview with Scott Kirby last mm-hmm. night, the CEO of United. And, and that guidance that they gave and his commentary seemed really bullish. The stock opened up at a new 52-week high today and then reversed. And I thought that was really interesting. And Karen just said it in the A block. She's like, she'd much rather see stocks go down into earnings than rally. And this stock has rallied a lot. It was up 40% or so just in the last month. And Tim pointed out that last night after we talked to uh, Mr. Kirby. So here's the deal here. I look at this thing and I look at that United chart and I see a beautiful double top. I look at the Jets ETF. I pull it out for two years and I see a very well-defined downtrend. It just got above that downtrend briefly, but that sort of reversal on good news leads me to kind of want to put on a defined risk bearish trade. I want to fade this move. So today when the Jets was trading just above 20 bucks at 2016, I bought the February expiration 2018 put spread. Um, I bought one of the February 20 puts at about 55 cents. I sold one of the 18 puts at about uh, a dime. That max um, premium that I have at risk is 45 cents. And I can make up to three times that premium um, at risk there. So my break even is down there at 19.55. I can make $1.55 if the Jets is below 18 on February. February expiration. I just really like the risk reward there. I'm risking about two and a half percent of the underlying ETF price. I have a break even down three percent and I could make up to eight percent if that ETF is down towards 18, which is that 200 day moving average in about a month. So I like the risk reward here. And always when I am trading options directionally long premium, um, if the thing is not going my way and I have about a 50 percent loss in that, I will cut that because I just don't want to see these long premium trades go to zero. So that's how I'm managing that trade. I, I think the fundamentals in the airline space are very interesting, but um, I think they're the greatest trading stocks of all time. I, I would not necessarily be piling into this trade today. It's, it's rallied 40 percent in nine sessions. But and I think you could sell upside calls because I think you're probably paid more in that direction. But uh, I think airlines are going higher. Um, I think you can be them lower. 
For more options action, uh, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, Netflix results on deck. Numbers set to cross after the bell tomorrow. So is it time to uh, bet on the binger or stream elsewhere the mm. trade when Fast Money returns? Welcome back to Fast Money. The countdown is on to Netflix earnings. The streaming giant has doubled since its May low. They report tomorrow after the bell, and analysts are expecting to see some revenue growth, but still expect EPS to be well below last year's levels. Investors have their eyes on three big topics, subgrowth, the effect of Netflix's password crackdown, and the growth of its ad-supported subscription tier. Guy, what do you think? You know, we've been saying it could trend up to 345 in earnings for a while. That's where we broke down from in April. I'll stand by that. Although now he's sort of in the deep end of the pool, given the run. But I think this is what's going to wind up happening. You're going to get that bounce after earnings to the upside. And I think it's going to fade from there. So 345 tomorrow after earnings. Pull the ripcord from there, Melms. I, I'm, I'm long Netflix, and I'm, I'm in the money on this trade now. But it, it was painful for a while, and it's had a huge run. We've talked about this. It's doubled. It's not cheap. Um, but I, I, I believe the media companies, especially the streamers, have been sold as if the business that we all thought was tomorrow's everything is, is no longer anything. And, and I, I want to stay here on Netflix. I think they're still the leader. They're starting to show profitability and free cash flow. Uh, I stay there. I agree with all that, but they have a big they have a big enterprise value, right? I mean, yep. some of the other ones have just been annihilated and are off the bottom of annihilated. Mm. Netflix has gotten back a lot of a lot it's of what they lost. Yes, a lot of its annihilation, and so I, I think even if they put up okay numbers, think of how much the stock has run going into this earnings right. print. So I, I I like it, but I have to sell some upside calls. For earnings. Yeah, so it's about the setup. Yeah, and yeah. the implied move in the options market about 10% in either direction. And that's just, okay, so this stock has obviously had some massive moves over the last um, couple of years. I just think given the rally that's had, I think the way guys thinking about it, if you're long and you're willing to play for that one kind of last move, pop, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it, like you know, like stocks like to fill in gaps. But to me, I wouldn't be playing long into the print. I think, like, a lot of good news is in the stock here. Up next, final trade. Trade time, Guy Adami. Shout out to Mrs. Mills and a birthday shout out to Sandy Canold, Cirrus oh. Logic, Mel. Oh. Happy birthday, San. Um, Tim. Big happy birthday, Sandy. Walmart. I mean, go you know, get an ice cream cake at Walmart or something like that. But I, big sell off, I think, from its highs. I think this is a place Walmart thrives. Karen. Yes, mine is short Netflix calls before the earnings and another happy birthday to Stacy Feinerman, my sister. Oh, oh, oh Sandy. But not naked yeah. short. Not naked short. Not naked short. Against call against, against stock. Against stock. Yes, okay, right. I was gonna say the indomitable Sandy Kennel happy birthday. Um, I'd be a seller of the Jets. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Kramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely. 
positively FedEx.